Hello everyone, welcome to Think Change, a podcast from ODI where we discuss some of the world's most pressing global issues with a variety of experts and commentators. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. Well, last week, global trade ministers held talks at the World Trade Organizations, and it was the first time since 2017. There was a primary point of contention at these talks, and it was the goal of achieving a deal on the COVID-19 vaccine. The ministerial conference was supposed to last four days, but in the end, um, it spilled over into a sixth day, and that's when the WTO finally arrived at an agreement on the so-called TRIPS waiver. For those who are not familiar with the term, TRIPS stands for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. So this is an international treaty which you know, regulates intellectual property rights. Um, there are multiple, multiple provisions of this agreement that cover the manufacturing of COVID-19 vaccines, and that basically creates a barrier for poorer nations to access vital medical supplies. And, and in particular, it is the patents of pharmaceutical products that preve- prevent smaller companies or nations from developing and manufacturing large quantities of lower-cost vaccines. This deal on the TRIPS, um, the deal on the waiver, basically removes intellectual property barriers around you know, the patents for COVID-19 vaccines, but only temporarily. And it postpones the discussions on extending the waiver to treatments and tests by just six months. The deal has been heavily criticized by campaigners because it's watered down the original text that had been proposed by India and South Africa. Um, we'll hear in the course of the show what you know, the alternative has been, that has been put on the table, but I think it's been not as satisfactory um, and it risks really reinforcing inequalities that have beset vaccine distribution so far. Um, something that the Director General of WHO, Tedros Ghebreyesus, has described as a moral failure for humanity. So while this deal may have been long awaited, we need to ask yourself, ourselves what benefit it will really have. To help unpack these issues and really to put them into the context of other actions needed to continue to respond to the COVID pandemic, but also to prepare for future pandemics, I'm really delighted to be joined by Helen Clark. Um, Helen needs no introduction to our listeners. Um, She's the former Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's the first female administrator of the UN Development Programme. Um, She's the president of Chatham House. She chairs the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, um, along with the former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson-Sirleaf. And she has a lot more accolades executive and non-executive boards, you know, many more than I can possibly <laughs> list today. Helen, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Um, along with um, Helen, I'm also joined by my colleague Tom Hart. Tom is a senior research fellow in ODI's Development and Public Finance Programme. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much um, to both of you for being on the show to help understand you know, better some of these, uh, perhaps you know, technical issues, but really important for people out there. I mean, you know, vaccine inequity presents a formidable challenge to confronting COVID-19. In fact, our research at ODI has really noted that the willingness of countries to support IP sharing has become a very powerful symbol, you know, basically a rallying call for many advocates of vaccine equity. 
which is why it is important to discuss the importance of the TRIPS deal. Helen, can you please give us your perspective on the agreement? What do you see as its flaws? Do you see any silver linings? Well, if I start with the silver lining, I think this was at least a WTO ministerial meeting, which did have some outcomes. We're rather used to these meetings being in crisis and not agreeing on anything at all. And it did reach some agreements. I think the new Director General Ngozi really has a, a force of personality which told the trade ministers, you have to walk out of here with something. And they did walk out with more than something on issues like fisheries, for example, or, or enabling uh, the World Food Programme to be able to have an exception from export restrictions on food. I mean, some of these things are extremely useful. But then we come to the issue of the TRIPS waiver, and it's clear to me that the ministerial meeting did not agree on a TRIPS waiver. What they agreed to was some refinement with respect to vaccines only uh, of the way in which you use compulsory licensing according to your national legislation. The reality is that even these flexibilities come so late that they're unlikely to be of much use now. There's actually quite a lot of vaccine around now and, and sadly not as much urgency and, and demand for it as one would like to see in, say, sub-Saharan Africa, which was left behind in the scramble for vaccines throughout uh, 2021. Uh, so to the extent it's introduced new flexibilities, that's better. It's also, I think, positive that the ministers have to come back in six months, and this was critical to getting agreement, and they have to discuss what flexibilities there's going to be with respect to therapeutics and diagnostics. And that's very, very important because, you know, unfortunately we're not on the, the brink of COVID going away anytime soon. And equitable access to diagnostics as they innovate those and, and therapeutics as they innovate those is going to be extremely important. So there are some silver linings, but it's not what South Africa and India set out to achieve. Yeah, no, not at all, but... Yeah, it's a tiny step, not definitely the leap that was um, required. Uh, Tom, what other actions do you think need to be taken to promote vaccine equity? So, so as Helen just said, you know, and as Barclay, the head of Gavi, which runs COVAX, recently declared that the global supply of COVID vaccines is now exceeds demand. So, so supply isn't a problem. But I think you know, even when it was clearly a problem, you know, earlier earlier in the year and last year. Action on trips, you know, there's a debate about how much it would have helped. Um, and a big constraint was um, global manufacturing capacity and capacity to do that. And so I think that, you know, there needs to be much more investment in those and, and you know, dispersed investments so that, you know, when, when the um, COVID wave hit India and it needed greater domestic demand and wouldn't export, um, to make sure so we don't we're not in situations like that again. So I think we need to see far more of the kind of the models that we saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine, that which is licensed widely and manufactured in many many countries. Um, you know the the Nobel laureate Michael Kramer um, at Chicago University has been doing work on kind of contracts that you can put in place that that when you make these orders create incentives for scaling up manufacturing capacity as well. So I think there's much more that you know we can learn the lessons from and that can be done. But I think you know that the a big test is 
is the the high income countries going to live up to their responsibilities and actually uh, take these actions? Because you know, as as Helen said, it was great to see actually you know some progress on kind of global cooperation that that, that something came out of WTO. But I think there's still a big question about you know ongoing with the ongoing pandemic and preparing, being prepared for the next one, whether whether the wealthy countries with their resources are actually going to live up to, to their responsibilities or not. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. I mean, you both mentioned um, how low the percentage of you know people in low-income countries is that has been vaccinated. It's actually just about 14%, which is really incredible to think when the vast majority of people in rich countries is now been triple boosted, if not quadruple boosted. The mechanism to ensure that um, populations in poorer countries receive the vaccine at the same time as the rest of the world was meant to be COVAX. Uh, but that's not really worked. Um, Helen, why do you think it has not worked? I think there's a number of reasons why it didn't work. It, it was designed in a hurry to, to deal with a crisis and designed with the best of intentions. But when you have a model that's based on paying market prices funded by donors, it, it, it doesn't add up. It, it, there wasn't a mechanism for equitable distribution globally according to prioritisation. In an ideal world, you would have had the world's health workers, then the world's uh, elderly and health vulnerable, and then you would have come out down age groups. As we know, the, the high-income countries uh, grabbed virtually all the early supply, uh, and it, it just wasn't there for, for love nor money, no matter how much you, you, you paid for it. And even as we speak now with the world awash with vaccines, uh, uh, COVAX still hasn't got the money to purchase um, them anyway. So the, the model is, is wrong. There was a tremendous reliance for, uh, for supply at a, at a reasonable price from the Serum Institute in India, but then India, faced with its uh, very, very serious outbreak, stopped export altogether, so that was disruptive. So it just hasn't been, been able to deliver. And the positive thing out of this is that there has now been a call for a full and comprehensive review from the co-facilitators of of ACTA and COVAX. And they will, I hope, take on board these lessons and ensure that we get something that's designed for global public goods, which this wasn't. Absolutely. So, Tom, what do you think needs to be put in place to prevent something similar from happening again if we are hit by another pandemic? So, so I think as as as, as Helen said, that the you know the key issue is that the funding for Covax wasn't wasn't there, and the orders it put in got shunted to the back of the queue, and and the the, the production had been brought up by by rich countries and then wasn't wasn't available to Covax. So you know I think that the the key problem that you know Covax faced is that it wasn't financed quickly enough. Um, and, you know, as I said, it still faces financing problems. You know, this year it's asked for $6 billion and it um, still requires $3.6 billion of that. Um, you know, we, we talked about the, the um, only 14% of um, the population in low-income countries being vaccinated, and UNICEF needs just $1.3 billion um, extra to help speed up that rollout. Um, and you know these aren't huge sums. Compare that to the twelve billion alone uh, that the US alone has spent on purchasing vaccines, and you know another fifty billion on on the R and D effort for those. Um, so th- these aren't huge amounts of money. So I think you know th- the big thing for me is that, and I think we'll come on to how the burden should be shared. But 
the, the key is that the the, um, the pandemic surge financing that COVAX or whatever mechanism needs needs to be pre-arranged and in place so that it can be drawn on by Gavi or whatever organization as soon as a pandemic hits. And then low-income countries don't have to be at the back of the queue. They can The orders can be put in for, 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 the, for their needs at the same time as, as rich countries. And I think, you know, th- this lesson of, you know, needing pre-arranged financing in your place is not just an issue for pandemics. Um, you know, Sarah, as you know, the, the, the absence of um, timely humanitarian financing is often a key key reason for the failure of humanitarian responses. And I think, you know, it was a key theme that Stefan Durkin's book, The Old Disaster, set out. So I think this lesson that we need pre-arranged financing that is agreed upon and that can be drawn down on as soon as as soon as a disaster or pandemic hits, rather than kind of have to go around with the begging bowl asking donors for funding, which just takes too long and delays action. I think that that to me is the real kind of lesson from, from COVAX. Yes, as you say, anticipatory financing has long been a bone for the humanitarian sector. I'll come back to financing, but I want to, to um, dwell a little bit um, longer on, on the reforms you know, for mm-hmm. pandemic preparedness and response. And Helen, you co-chair the Independent mm-hmm. Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, and as I said, with Helen Johnson, Sirlip. Last month, you put out a one-year-on assessment, of, you know, I think a very powerful report that you published, in May 2021, which was entitled COVID-19 Making the Last Pandemic. Mm. And I've noticed that you've called the one-year-on assessment a transformative tinkering, you know, in action lays the groundwork for another pandemic. And I fear, t- I fear that this tells a story. Um, so wh- where have you seen progress on your recommendations and where do you think we need a lot more action urgently? When our panel began its work on the report, the first thing we did was look at what other reports had been done in this area in the past. And we found 16 different reports, reviews, and commissions which had looked at this kind of area, most of which made very pretty pictures on bookshelves. And so we we decided we would be a noisy panel and not go away when our task was finished. So we continued to issue these accountability reports. What we see is that uh, there has been a response to the kinds of recommendations that we made. We made recommendations across governance and financing and changes to the legal regime and what needed to happen for the pre-negotiated platform that should replace ACT-A and COVAX and and what WHO needed in order to be a a viable organisation. And various work streams are dealing with these things, but not in any coordinated way and not with any sense of urgency. So, for example, with the WHO funding, it at the present time gets 16% of its base program funded through the members' fees, which means it's going cap in hand for the base program. There's now been an agreement that 50% of the base program should be covered by the members. We recommended two-thirds, but hey, attack 50 is, is something. But it won't come into effect for eight years. So that's four budget cycles. So this is not speed of lightning to try to strengthen the backbone of of WHO. Then you look at at the issue of the new legal provisions, two completely separate tracks. One looking at the international health regulations and one looking at the concept of a new legal instrument, content and form unspecified. Uh, So... Let us hope these two streams are in very close 
conversation with each other because there's some things that need to be done that can be dealt with through the international health regulations, if not all of the urgent things. But here's the rub. We're now in the third year of the pandemic. These two processes on the legal issues are not due to report to the World Health Assembly until May 2024, when we're going to be in the fifth year since the pandemic began. So you can see that as the years go by, the sense of urgency diminishes and they'll limp over the finish line with something, but who knows what. You know, we're trying to get these things negotiated in highly charged times geopolitically, and it, it's not going to be easy at all. That, then you come uh, to the financing, which we can, can say more, more about, but... Uh, what is being proposed, uh, led by the United States uh, and with the support of WHO and the World Bank, is not what we propose because we think the financing needs uh, an appropriate you know, sort of global public investment model. It should not be a donor-led model with the founding donors leading the governance. Uh, the bank shouldn't be an all-powerful entity with it. We can talk in more detail uh, about that soon. The outstanding issue, I think, then is governance. Because, as I said, these different processes are going on different tracks and they're not, not coordinated. Uh, we still think that you need outside and beyond WHO an overarching council, which can, at head of government and state level, with civil society and private sector participation, uh, be maintaining the political momentum for mobilising around pandemic preparedness and response. Otherwise, we will lapse back into the cycle of panic and neglect. We're into the neglect phase now, even with the pandemic going. Imagine you know, that it's receding a little more and we're happier about the vaccines and the therapeutics than we are now. What attention will these issues get until the next time when we go into a total panic about a global pandemic? So having, having an oversight structure which uh, does call people out, does hold them to account, and having that led uh, beyond WHO, uh, mandated by uh, the General Assembly, we think is the way to go. It's not a novel idea. Something of this kind was recommended by the Kikwete review that uh, Ban Ki-moon appointed five, six, seven years ago. It was killed off then, and uh, let us see whether the General Assembly is bold enough to grab this and say, look, we, we just can't stagger on as we are without any overarching coordination and oversight. And is there a way you think that we can mobilise more public support to try and, and push you know, for what is clearly something that is very much needed? So there is a process beginning at the General Assembly with a, a resolution uh, to have a, a high-level meeting to agree a political declaration. And the political declaration should draw together these elements and in the opinion of our panel, it should actually uh, take the steps necessary to, to set up a, a global oversight council of, of, of this kind. Um, otherwise, uh, things will go on in an uncoordinated way without a sense of, of urgency to put things right. Yeah. You um, hinted to the financing mechanism and uh, the fact that they are inadequate. I mean, that was actually one recommendation of the report that, in a way, was taken up. And yeah. that was also on the back of uh, the G20 high-level independent panel on, on financing pandemic preparedness and response. So the G20 finance ministers have agreed to the creation of a new 
um, 10 billion uh, dollar fund that is focused on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. And in fact, it, you know, it's, it's already been, um, in a way, supported. Uh, they are getting the funds together, even though the fund has not been set up yet. The fund is to be housed by um, the World Bank. But there is a lot of concern that it may not, in the end, be adequately funded. And in, in your report, you, you argue, and you alluded to that now, against the current system of you know, voluntary contribution, talk about you know, an, an ability to pay formula. Can you tell us a bit more about you know, the, the formula and what do you think the obstacles to, to shaping it in this way are? Well, I think if the financial intermediary fund was seen as a, a holding action, well, you've got other steps in place that you know, one could accept that as doing something. But uh, we don't think that uh, a fund that depends depends on donors each year to raise the money is, is, is the way to go. We thought that it needed to be done on an assessed contribution basis where everybody paid in, but then support obviously went out to support those most needing uh, the capacity to, to, to be prepared. And you know, general agreement that this will be about 10.5 billion a year. Now, even though you know, the idea is out there and running now and some contributions have been announced, it's still only got to a billion dollars. <laughs> and, and, you know, so you, you're nine and a half short, but that ten and a half billion needs to be raised every year. If you did it on the assessed contributions basis, it's very little for countries, actually. Um, but it, at, at the moment, that that's not the way it's going now. I'm not sure it's a totally smooth ride at the G20. There was a lot of resistance um, uh, to this, uh, but it, it may, in the end, get you know, fully ticked off. But that doesn't mean that all G20 countries are going to put much money into it. Uh, so I think the other issue is that you, you have three functions around uh, the, the World Bank and the fund. There's the trusteeship function for holding the money, understand that. Then they would also hold the secretariat, which surely should be contestable. And thirdly, they're an implementing agency. So it's, it's kind of like judge and jury uh, all in one. And I'm not sure this is a good model. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Tom, what do you think? Should this fund be focused on preparedness and response or can it fund both? And, and how can we get around some of the issues that Helen has you know, described in terms of um, making it really work. So, I mean, I think from the, from the finance end, you need to finance two things. So the, the first is you need this kind of regular, annual, reliable flow of funding for preparedness so that we get away from, you know, the, the panic and neglect cycle um, that Helen described. And, you know, to, to do things like fund kind of your basic public health infrastructure, surveillance systems, your research and development, you know, your standby manufacturing so that so that if a pandemic hits, you can scale up very quickly. So so that's one thing you did. And I, th- I think that's really what this this fund is going to be focused on. And then the other thing is that you need is what we what we were talking about before, which is you need the surge financing that is available, you know, when a when a pandemic hits. And I, I don't think you want to mix the two up because it's very easy for uh, you know, a preparedness fund to get all used up in a response, and then you're back and having no funding for that. So I, th- I think it's sensible to keep those to keep those separate. And um, you know, I think the the those researchers at the the bank and the RMF who've been you know looking looking at proposals for how um, you know how you can have this surge financing in place as well mm-hmm. by you know funding in advance. 
um, by by some kind of insurance mechanism or by you know you you maybe say to the uh, multilateral development banks and the IMF that you say okay look you know you bear the risk you respond to the pandemic and we'll give you a we'll give you a capital increase afterwards so I think that there's ways of getting that surge financing in place but you know c- coming back to um, you know c- coming back to this um, pandemic fund I think that you know we, we need to have that that funding there for the for the preparedness um, you know the the governance issues need to be sorted out. Um, and, and they're tricky to do. I think that you know we've got kind of two main competing models of governance. We've got the kind of UN system with the set contributions that, that Helen described. We've also got kind of what the multilateral development banks have, which is you know effectively to, to guarantee continuing financial support for them. You give the the share the, the funding shareholders a much bigger say in their governance and. I think there's a question about whether that kind of model is is still acceptable today. And you know, if you know if the if the if the if the funders are not going to pony up the money reliably, then it raises the question of why they should have any larger voice anyway. So I think I think there's big government questions that that that, that do need to be. And there's you know in in um, the pandemic panel reports, I think one of the things you highlighted was the need to connect the fund to more overarching governance that could guide its decision making and structures. Mm-hmm. And there's been talks about a kind of some kind of global health security council, the G20 health security council, and and that's not yet in place either. So the kind of the political direction for for this fund, I think, still needs to be resolved as well as the kind of detailed governance arrangements for it. Very good points. Um, so next week. Um, G7 leaders will discuss how, and I quote, um, they can lead the global recovery from coronavirus while strengthening our resilience against future pandemics. Helen, what do you think G7 leaders should do? Well, I've got quite a list for the G7. (laughs) (laughs) Well, firstly, I would like their members to show much more generosity in the negotiations continuing at the WTO uh, on the therapeutics and diagnostics issues. Uh, it, it, it's it's well known that some key G7 nations uh, were you know, really at the forefront in opposing uh, a significant relaxation of intellectual property rules for vaccines. And if the same attitude carries over now into therapeutics and diagnostics, this, this will not be helpful. For, for heaven's sake, we're fighting a pandemic. There has to be something more important than protecting your pharmaceutical companies to make a profit in the face of a global uh, pandemic. So more generosity of spirit at at, at WTO. Secondly, we're still fighting a pandemic. I mean, we're also, of course, in the panel, we're looking forward to the future global architect. But right right now, Act A and COVAX need money. Uh, You mentioned, Tom, the figure of about six billion total for, for COVAX, of which about half some funded. The total for Act Day that's outstanding is still over $13 billion for this year, to the best of my knowledge. So that needs to come from the world's uh, wealthiest uh, economies. Um, I think also the G7 should be uh, determined to use its voice uh, at the IMF and the World Bank to support uh, the low and low middle income countries to have the maximum fiscal space to try to recover, not just from this major global health crisis of the pandemic, but we're into the second global health crisis with the, with the food and energy shocks and what this is doing to impoverish, uh, impoverish people and, and cause, of course, you know, major health 
health uh, consequences. Uh, one can add to that that the World Food Programme is about 10 billion short of its anticipated needs for, for feeding uh, the hungry uh, this, this year. I think the G7 could also uh, be uh, looking at how to address effectively the unsustainable debt issues that many countries uh, have now. And in all truth, uh, the, the debt um, servicing uh, suspension initiative helped very little. Uh, my research suggests that a uh, it was a 13 billion of relief for 48 LICs. That doesn't amount to terribly much. So some kind of better initiative needs to be rolled over. And then I would ask the, the G7 to, you know, to support the UN General Assembly having the high-level meeting and getting a political declaration in place and providing for the overarching government. So I think all these are things that you know, the, the, the G7 could do to be serious about supporting a response here and now in better architecture moving forward. That sounds like a pretty good list to me. You know, if they want to be true to their ambitions of leading global recovery and um, strengthening our resilience to future pandemics, those are all fundamental issues. Uh, Tom, what do you think a, a good um, G7 meeting uh, would look like? So, so I, I don't want to add anything to kind of Helen's list. I think if we could make significant process on you know any, any of those issues would probably be doing a better job than than than, than at the last g7 but I, I also want to kind of look slightly further ahead to the um g, the indonesian g20 meeting um which is um happening in in bali in november um and so and those processes are already going on the, the first g20 finance and health ministers um meeting um what was was this week um, to discuss um, global health financing. And I think some of the issues that, that Helen was talking about, you know, we're, we're in a much more multipolar world now. It's not just the G7 that we need, obviously, engagement with, with China, but also with some of the other um, bigger emerging powers and middle-income countries. And I think some specific things that, that need to be taken forward at the G20, and we want to see agreements on there, are, you know, getting agreement for how this new pandemic fund is going to work, um, how uh, kind of global health security board that, that could oversee it could be set up and established as well, and I think the um, the importance of you know debt relief and fiscal space for low income countries which have you know faced the shock from coronavirus have now faced these food price shocks and inflationary shocks and rising debt service costs and that's hugely important. I think that needs to also be taken forward very seriously at, at, at the G20 as well. So I think let's let's look at the G7 and hopefully it can make some progress, but also it needs to give a sense of momentum on these issues going into the G20 later in the year so that we can see some, um, some resolve and, and action taken there as well. But well, we're almost at time, but anything else you'd like to put on the table before we close? A new project. There's one coming out of Chatham House to run a commission on universal health. Deliberately not stated as universal health coverage because the challenge is bigger than achieving that. So I'm co-chairing this new commission with former President Kikwete from Tanzania. We have around 30 commissioners of people who've been in government, academia, civil society. And what our mission is, is to say, can we use this crisis to catalyze momentum on universal health? 
We know that many of the world's great health systems, from the NHS to New Zealand's and Sweden's to, to Thailand's to even reforms in China after SARS, these reforms were made at times of great crisis when there was a need to put in place better health systems. And so this is a time of compounding crises, as we know, across climate, conflict, COVID, who knows what next. Human beings are feeling very insecure in this world. And politicians who get it, that the need to support populations to be health secure will help address some of the underlying anxieties people around the world now have, I think would be doing a good thing for their countries and a good thing in perpetuity for their populations because these systems never get taken out. We look at the strength of the national health system in, um, in Britain. Uh, it's survived all shades of government because it's a holy grail. People don't want to give up the universal health coverage. Uh, we think that the Commission needs to emphasise that it is more than access to services. We do need ongoing and stepped-up investment in public health uh, and in addressing the social determinants of health inequity. Um, so it'll be quite a big agenda, but we hope to be able to show from case studies that times of crisis are when you do these things. In New Zealand, we got comprehensive uh, universal basic social protection and universal health coverage during the Great Depression. It wasn't when we were rich, but it was part of becoming a high-income country that you looked after the health of your people. So that's what we want to promote. Uh, it's a big but absolutely worthwhile and critical agenda, as you say, is exporting what we hold so dear in each country is to make sure that everyone can have access to it. Well, thank you so much. Helen and Tom, I'm afraid we are at time, but this has been such a wonderful, useful conversation. I mean, as you say, Helen, you know, we're right now dealing with the compounding crisis of COVID, climate and conflict. And it's clear to me that we see a highly uneven fallout across country. And as you both said, this is to me a failure of multilateral governance you know, to protect against shocks and, and stimulate recovery. And, and as you said very, very well, you know, getting progress back on track means getting, you know, multilateral cooperation back on track. It's really stopping this protectionism, this short-sightedness that is, you know, characterizing the, the actions of rich countries. Uh, it, it, the conversation leaves me with some real questions about, you know, whether the West is still a reliable partner in promoting development, but that is going to be for another episode of Think Change. Um, for today, thank you very much, Helen and Tom, for all your precious insights. Thank you to our listeners. Um, we hope that this discussion has given you um, some new you know, important perspectives into the critical issue of vaccine equity and pandemic preparedness. Remember to subscribe to the show. We are on all your favorite podcast providers. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.